Hello, everyone, and welcome to Digital Roadmap, an old-school gaming podcast where we explore how the games of the past brought us the games that we love today. I'm your host, Grant, and this episode, we're going to look back at where the first-person genre came from, really, where it started and where it's come to up to today. Now, to start it out, we actually don't even look at a shooter game to begin with, the very beginning of the genre, because it laid a lot of the groundwork that allowed them to add shooting into it. It's a game called Way Out on the Atari hardware. This was a maze game. It was a first-person maze game, which did exist already. Those were things that were out there and popular at the time. But this was the first one to have the full ability to turn, like full 360-degree movement. Before that, you would turn on 90-degree turns. You'd basically go the you'd basically go the four cardinal directions before this. So you'd go north, west, east, south. Now you could turn in any direction. You could actually go along diagonal corridors, essentially, as long as the map builder allowed you to do it. And the other thing this did, basically, it gave you a precursor to what became an auto map feature or a mapping feature that we all know, we all love, and is so essential to first person anything these days because it's so easy to get turned around. Because it showed you a map at the bottom of the screen that updated as you explored. Instead of just giving you a full map, it would update it after you passed over a certain square. So this was all done essentially through a grid program. And by going across the grid, it then turned on that you stepped on there. Therefore, you're able to map it now, which is a great feature, a great thing to see. And as I said, laid the groundwork for the auto mapping that we get today. After that, we take a lot of the core concept to that and create another game for the Atari, which was MIDI Maze. This basically took the concept and the foundation that Way Out created and added in a shooting element for other people. Now, this game was actually designed as a deathmatch-style game, and what it did is, instead of using some sort of networking port, which really wasn't a thing at the time, you couldn't do that, essentially, it used the MIDI hardware, the MIDI ports, which are basically your musical synthesizers. It's how we listen to music, it's how we bootlegged music, essentially, before MP3s were a thing, before WAV files could be compressed enough to be small enough to download. You would download MIDIs, which would go from, turn like a 5 megabyte wave file of music into a 5 kilobyte file almost. Exaggerating a little bit, but also you didn't have any voices in it, so that's that was a loss. But instead of using that for audio simulation, they now turn these into networking ports. You can now connect multiple computers. I think it was about 8 or 16 computers you could sync up at a single time and play this deathmatch game. Now, most people do know this later on as a Game Boy game called Faceball, Faceball 2000, where you would fight other bots instead of other actual players. But it, it's actually really fascinating to see that the first acknowledged, the first large-scale first-person shooter was a multiplayer deathmatch game instead of the single player that you would expect based on the limitations of the hardware at the time. Now, after Mini Maze, this then becomes a very PC-centered genre for the most part for the next while until about early 2000s. Because this is where we had, as we mentioned in a previous episode, the shareware explosion. So you basically had a lot of people now, they had some very basic hardware, and they just needed to be exposed to free games, and that really brought this genre to the masses. That's where you had people trading those floppy disks with Doom, with Wolfenstein 3D, and getting it into each other's hands, and then copying those disks so that they could then play some basic multiplayer matches against each other. People would bring their computers together into LAN parties, tie them all together, and start playing against one another. Now, most of these games did use a 3D layout, so you had a level of height to the game. You could actually go up to different levels and down to different levels. But most of the characters were still basically 2D. They were basically flat. At most, they had a front and a back. So if they didn't have a back in the earlier ones, if they didn't have a back, you couldn't shoot them from behind. You couldn't get those bonuses that you get nowadays. You're just shooting at them, and they're always facing you almost. Now, the big three of this time frame were Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, and Duke Nukem 3D. 
I'm not going to go into too much detail because those are actually the focus of the next episode, the three of them together, but they really were the backbone of this explosion on the PC market. One of the other ones I really want to mention because it deserves a lot of respect for what it did and you might recognize the company in the long run. It's a game called Marathon from 94. It was actually the Mac equivalent for Doom or Wolfenstein and it was created by Bungie. If you know them at all, you're going to know them either from Destiny right now or the Halo franchise as the progenitors of that for the first three games and it really that i mean that very much set the groundwork for their style going forward you are a space marine fighting on a giant colony ship essentially like you you will see a lot of the marathon culture a lot of the marathon style reflected in the early halo games and reflected in destiny now and if you go back and watch some of the early rooster teeth red versus blue series for halo you're going to see actually they use marathon at one or two points to do a quote-unquote flashback sequence into the past. And one of the other big ones that came as a result of id games as well was Quake. And that really brought real 3D models that brought the fast action that we're used to now. And it was actually the birth of WASD, which is the typical shooter layout on your keyboard for moving around. So you have your left hand on WASD, you'll have your right hand on the mouse. That's how you're going to interact with the world for the most part in a shooter nowadays. And that was actually adopted after a massively successful use in a pro tournament for Quake. And if it had been somebody else's success, if a different player had won, it would have been a different layout that we're all familiar with because everybody adopted it afterwards because it became popular. It clearly must have worked because it was the winner. And I'm actually going to put a link in the show notes to an article that talks about that because it's actually a really neat article to read. Now, one of the things we do get out of first-person shooters, and it's become very common, actually almost oversaturated at this point, are war games. We've got them It's starting in the early 2000s late 99, early 2000s. Basically, at that point, we get games like Call of Duty and Battlefield, and they actually started right around the turn of the century and established war as a great scene for these first-person shooters, which makes sense because it's a military simulation, essentially. And with Call of Duty, you basically, it's mostly done, and before these war games were mostly strategy games before, be they turn-based or real-time, where you're controlling whole squads at once, whole platoons at once. And this brings it down to the personal level. You are now one soldier amongst a group, and it makes it a little more chaotic, makes it a little more in line with what you would expect warfare to be. And the funny thing is, with Call of Duty, they actually exploded onto the scene with the first one with a focus on the events surrounding D-Day. They didn't focus on the storming of the beaches. They focused on all the support missions that were going on around there, which was really great to see, gave a lot of respect. And one of the things that I love for it personally is that it actually acknowledges the Canadian beachhead. Something that gets often ignored during D-Day, it ignores the fact that you had a beachhead specifically for the Canadian forces at that point. Always a bit of a point of pride for me. And like I said, they kept it at a personal level. It was very objective-based. You had squad mates that would come with you during it. You had commanding officers giving you your objectives as you're in the field, sometimes dying, sometimes succeeding, sometimes sending you to be almost a sacrificial lamb with the, and expe- not expecting you to make it back out. And on the flip side of it, going back to more of the MIDI maze style, we have Battlefield 1942, and this was basically intended as a strictly multiplayer game. You could play against AI bots in the game, but you didn't have a strictly structured story. Essentially, you had war campaigns. You could play through certain sets of maps together, forming a military campaign, but you're doing very much almost capture the flag or capture the certain points, hold and defend, attack, defend, all these different things in there. Game modes that are very typical nowadays, game modes that essentially you're going to see in something like an Overwatch tournament. And this really did it. And it, like I said, it brought that foundation, that multiplayer deathmatch, keep fighting until you've got your objectives, until you've got your points system to a modern era. 
Giving to charity is a good thing. Giving to charity and getting a game in return is an even better thing. With the Humble Store, you can do just that. When you buy from the Humble Store, a portion of every purchase goes to charity. It doesn't matter if you buy a single game, one of their game or book bundles, or their monthly bundle deal. Every purchase helps out a great cause. Humble includes a wonderful collection of new releases, indie darlings, and even the time-tested classics. Games like Orwell, where you serve as a member of a government surveillance program, deciding the information to pass up the chain of command. Do you ignore the context and make someone look like just an unhinged killer? Or do you ignore your instincts, even at the risk to public safety, just to make sure you don't give the wrong details? One of the classics that I love and I keep going back to is Fallout, the original. It's a post-apocalyptic game that launched the whole series. Can you find the water chip needed to save your people before time runs out? And I don't even want to get into the rest of the story after that happens. After you win your objective, there's a whole other story that pans out that's also very crucial. And as an added bonus for listeners of this podcast, if you buy anything after following the link in the show notes, a small portion of your purchase is going to be given to the show. This helps support the kind of content you're listening to right now, helps offset some of our hosting costs. So if you were looking for a new game or to get a classic that won't run off the discs anymore because it just doesn't run on modern systems, go to the Humble Store using the links in the show notes and get something for your donation. Now, The other thing we saw kind of late 90s, early 2000s was more of an addition of story and statistics or... RPG elements essentially being integrated into these games. So the first big story one, the one that really made story a huge focus was Half-Life. Up until then, the general attitude was, okay, we'll give you a basic story. We'll throw some information in there. For the odd people that want to go really digging for it, we'll have it there as well. But for the most part, you guys don't need story. You're just there to kill things. Half-Life brought this really to the forefront. It's become such a major thing now. You actually expect games to have a story sometimes. Games that don't need a story will have a story because people expect it now. And one of the big things they did with it as well is they didn't focus on static cutscenes that you had no control over. They did this with Half-Life a little bit. They really ramped this up in Half-Life 2 is they had free form movement during what would otherwise be cutscenes. You're allowed to wander around the scene. You're allowed to explore the environment around you. You're not just stuck sitting there doing nothing. That's always been a staple of it, and I love seeing it happen. The other thing it did that is crucial for first-person shooters is it allowed mods. There was such a huge modding scene for the original Half-Life. Two that are still going today that I'm going to mention, I'm just going to mention these two because they're still so strong, is Counter-Strike and Team Fortress. Both of those were free, fan-made mods for the Half-Life engine that have become their own standalone, hugely successful games on their own rights. Counter-Strike, its latest iteration, is a major esports feature nowadays. You can't get an esports tournament without having a Counter-Strike match going on in it. The other one that also did make the time to tell a story and added a lot of stats into your character, like it was borderline RPG or real-time RPG from a first-person perspective rather than a first-person shooter, was System Shock. This is a game that it, it didn't just have a great story. Like I said, it had inventory management. It had character stats. It had ability to level up your character. All of, essentially level up without calling it that. But all of this added in these RPG elements into what was essentially a shooter. And it also did away with one of the classic gaming tropes for first-person shooters. Most FPS games up to this point, you could carry 9, 10 weapons. Basically, however many number keys you have, there's your number of weapons. This pared it down to inventory limits. So you would have, say, enough space for one really big gun and two small guns, or maybe four medium guns and a small gun. You had to manage. You had to choose what to bring with you. So this actually required a little tactical thinking, which you would again see in Halo later on. You would see it in the modern Doom games. You would see it in 
a lot of games now limit you to two weapons, basically one in your hand and one strapped to you somewhere at some point. And then the spiritual successor to System Shock and very much done by a lot of the same team was Bioshock. I think this is one that even non-shooter fans are going to be familiar with. It was kind of a quasi-open world shooter, but it had a very deep story and very, very deep world building. I'm not going to get into it too much. It's something that can be discussed later on its own episode, but needless to say, the story was the big feature on this. One of the other things it did, though, is it gave you superpowers, essentially. And I know they're not called superpowers, but they're, they're superpowers. And they use that to actually allow very detailed interaction with the world. So if you had the right powers equipped for the right area, you could actually get into what would otherwise be a secret zone for other players. If you had a firepower equipped in the right spot, you could get through that block of ice that's been formed, go in there, get some extra resources that you wouldn't be able to get without that power equipped. If you have a bunch of enemies standing in a puddle of water, you can, and you have the electricity power equipped, you zap the water, those enemies drop, you don't have to spend the bullets taking them down, you don't have to try and take the hits to your health taking them down. So we've seen a lot of that now, that's become almost standard. If you don't have some sort of character progression system, outside of just bigger guns with more boom, it's almost like you're missing something from your games now. And if we're really looking at how the genre has come to this point where it is now, it's actually really neat seeing what's going on because we've actually seen a lot of relaunch of the classics. I mean, the big three I'm covering next episode, we have Doom 2016 that came out. We have Wolfenstein, the new order that came out. We have Duke Nukem Forever. I know I keep mentioning this, but I want to mention again, I had a friend who paid full retail price. Hi, Ryan. When it was first announced and lost his receipt, even though GameStop or EB were going to honor it eventually. And then we even have a System Shock 3 in development right now. Some of the war games I mentioned earlier, both Call of Duty and Battlefield, have become effectively annual franchises. They're the shooter equivalent of these sports games. They're coming out every year with new stuff. And in fact, both of them have returned to their roots in World War II at some point in the last while. So they've gone from vintage war to modern warfare to futuristic warfare and all the way back to World War I, World War II, trench warfare, very visceral, very close quarters type war. On the other side of the equation, some things that we're seeing now are basically this games-as-service concept and very tournament-focused games, games that are designed for major esports scenes. Counter-Strike and Call of Duty both have major tournaments on the esports scene. Call of Duty, they'll update it every time, kind of cycle their games in as they're coming up. We have Blizzard coming in with Overwatch, so they've repurposed the world of an entirely canceled MMO that they were working on and turned it into a squad shooter that has now become essentially a professional franchise because they've built an esports scene around it very similar to how you would get an NHL or an M MLB franchise going where every city can bid on a team, build it up. They have identities back in their hometowns and really made it into something with an actual schedule, an actual expected time all under one banner. And on the server side, we're seeing games like Destiny 2 and Anthem, very online, very open world type environments that are mostly free roam, but then in the individual missions become a little more instanced while you're out there. And they're always online. I mean, you can play it solo if you want. You can go off on your own, do your own thing, but they're intended for you to be able to pair up with people and team up with pickup groups very quickly, very readily, and you have to be online to play them. Something that would never, ever be imagined when this genre started. During the shareware age, you never would have guessed that you would have games always connected to other players it was the kind of thing you had to like i said you had to bring your computer to a friend's house or to a land party hook them all up just so you could play with other people in the deathmatch side forget the story just in the competitive side and so that's it for the rise of the first person shooter genre thanks for joining me this episode and if you want to reach out you can do that either on twitter at roadmap podcast come by the website roadmappodcast.com we got the discord channel we got the facebook page 
feel free to suggest some older games while you're there. Maybe what we should play in a future episode. Share some of your favorite memories, some of your favorite shooters, past, modern, or just ask some questions. I'm always happy to answer some questions. While you're at it, don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you're getting your podcasts, wherever you get your other podcasts, you're listening to this, subscribe right now. And that's because next episode, we'll be looking at the big three of the shareware years. I mentioned it earlier in the episode. We got Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, and Duke Nukem 3D. These are the foundation. Not only are these the classics of the day, but they've all made returns recently. Some with more of a stumble than others, and that is going to be a big focus of it, is talking about how Duke Forever did. But they are still the foundation. They are still the ones you look back on with fond memories that you can't help but look at and say, this is how it got started. So if you want to learn more about those games, come back then, and thanks for listening.